What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for season 6 episode 24, We're No Fools. In this week's episode, we started off by letting you guys hear the promise that was made to Sandy during her interrogation that uh, the detectives that were interrogating her and investigating her husband's murder were going to leave no stone unturned. They were going to talk to everyone she knew, everyone in the neighborhood, all of her relatives and find everything out about her. And what we found out through that episode, just by going through the supplemental reports, was that uh, really none of that happened. Um, And also we had a couple new revelations, so we'll get right into your questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're going to start things off with a listener voicemail. Hi, Bob. Just want to say, awesome show, by the way. Um, and thank you for all the hard work you, you do. I had a question around this week's episode. You talk about that you believe that Sandy, uh, it was not more than, uh, it was a memory from Sandy. Uh, or anything that you've corrob- corroborated there is just, it's just that, the fact that she has told that story. It doesn't prove that she didn't make up the story. It doesn't prove that she misremembered or completely uh, dreamt it. Um, I, I think think she remembered it. Um, or, or, in fact, it could be a memory. But just the corroboration you've done doesn't prove that it actually happened. 
all that it proves is that she actually told that story. Like, she's telling the truth about telling that story at that time. Um, I'd love you to, to sort of maybe expand on that a little bit. Thank you. Anyway, keep up the great, great work. Thanks. Bye. Okay, uh, I don't think that listener left his name, but I appreciate the call and the, and the question. And, and you're, you're exactly right in the fact that the only thing that the corroboration does is to corroborate that Sandy, in fact, told the story. Um, and, and the reality of it is there's absolutely no way to corroborate anything that, that she says, you know, because she says she remembered this. Uh, there's no way to corroborate that. You know, she could be making it up. You know, that's what the whole issue with this case is to begin with, right? So there's the people that believe Sandy when she says she doesn't know what happened. And then there's the people that don't believe her and believe she murdered her husband and staged it. So there's no way for us to corroborate specifically that, that Sandy did in fact see this. And as you said, the corroboration came in the fact that, uh, we can corroborate that she did in fact have that conversation with Marissa. Now, the reason that I find that significant is because it's, you know, I've, I've talked about, um, you know, our kind of analysis of memories and when we're, when we're kind of evaluating the veracity or the truthfulness of anything that anyone says, we're always looking at like, what is a utility and a lie? Um, and there's, there's certain little indicators where people will, you know, slip up and leak out information here and there. And so for me, and, and some people may not see it this way and that's okay. But for me, the conversation that Sandy had with Marissa was significant because there's not a utility in it. Meaning, so, so if that was made up that, you know, that, that she, when she asked Marissa if there was somebody there, well, if, if we're thinking that that's an intentional, uh, setup or lie from Sandy, then it, it just can't be. There's, there's no, she never completes the cycle of that, right? So she just, she asked Marissa, Hey, is your friend okay? And, and there's a lot going on there. Um, listener Wendell Mass, uh, had a really good post about linguistics on the, the, the fan page. And, and, and the linguistics involved in things like that are, I find very interesting, intriguing, and important. I'm certainly not an expert in it, but the way it was described by Marissa, was that Sandy just said, hey, is your friend okay? Okay, and and so she is, in my opinion, leaking out information there. And that's why I wanted to confirm that with Marissa uh, by asking her, did that conversation happen and what what was the conversation? So when Sandy begins that conversation with, is your friend okay that was there that night? To me, that's an indicator that Sandy believes that the woman in the bathroom is someone that Marissa already had knowledge of. Meaning she believes now, now we can get into, and actually next week in the file, we're going to get into some memory stuff, but uh, the memory of that may not be accurate, but that's an indicator that when she, she brought it up to Marissa, she brought it up to her as though Marissa knew that there was a young woman in the bathroom with her that night. So when she just says, Hey, is your friend okay? And then Marissa says, who, what friend, what are you talking about? She's the friend that was with you that night. I'm worried about her. Is she okay after seeing everything that went down? And Marissa says there was nobody there that night. Marissa and Lisbeth say she seemed confused at that point, and she says, I, I, I thought you had somebody with you. I remember seeing somebody with you, and she says, no, it was just us. It was just our family there that night. And then the fact that Sandy backs away from it at that point, you know, from the way Liz described her, she, she could tell she was trying to process through something. She was definitely confused, and remember, she's dealing with the lupus fog, uh, PTSD memories, which again, like I said, we're going to get into in next week's follow-up. And so she's got this memory that she's what it tells me is that she was sure of that memory when she brought it up to Marissa. I mean, she was sure she saw that woman standing there. She was also sure that woman was standing there 
when they untied her. And then Marissa tells her no one's there, and now she's confused because now she's having to question her own memory, something that she was convinced of that did occur, she's just been told didn't occur. And, and so it makes perfect sense as to why she's going back and trying to process what just happened. Wait a minute, I know I saw that person, but she's saying there's no one there. And then that's when, you know, days go by or a week goes by. And, and the interesting, so, so Liz, Liz described it as her waking up from a dream. Sandy didn't specifically say it was a dream. So I, so, you know, that could be that, you know, Sandy was laying in bed and she was thinking about it and it just got her really upset. And Liz thought she was dreaming or it could have been a dream and Sandy not realize it was a dream. Whatever the case was, eventually Sandy connects those dots. Things get clear and she realizes, okay, I wasn't wrong about seeing that woman in the bathroom. I wasn't wrong about it. I was wrong about when I saw her. That's why Marissa said, and, Mo and Monica was there too during that conversation. The whole family was there. That's why they said, no, there was no one there that night with us because she finally realizes because there really wasn't. But I did have this memory. I did see this woman. And so it must have been when they were tying me up, not when they're untying me, because she's got some sensory memories that go along with that, too. So she remembers feeling someone manipulating her arms behind her back. She remembers feeling pressure in her back as though someone had their knee in, in her back. Those are sensory memories, and they're the exact type of memories you would expect someone to be able to recall during a traumatic event, you know, when they're when they're able to start piecing their memories back together. The fact that she was confused about it to begin with also makes perfect sense because of the way PTSD memories work. You know, any anytime you're you're dealing with a traumatic event like that or when you're confused, you know, the, your memory doesn't work the way a lot of people think it does. You know, Jim Clemente has explained it to me over and over again. You know, you don't just have this little spot in your brain where boom, here's this memory. Your memory is an amalgamation of bits and pieces of information from different parts of your brain that all meld together to become a memory. So in this instance, if this is a true and accurate memory, part of Sandy's brain remembers feeling the person manipulating her arms, remembers feeling the pressure on her back, remembers looking up and seeing the woman. That's one part of her brain. But then another part of her brain, kind of the, the, the more cognitive part of the brain, is remembering Herman coming into the bathroom and helping untie her. And it's not uncommon at all for your brain to mesh those two things together to create one memory. And that's what, where the confusion comes in. It's actually, if you do some research on, on traumatic incident memories, uh, that's not uncommon at all. The fact that she was able to sort it out later is also not uncommon at all. But kind of getting back to the, the voicemail and the question, what do we really corroborate? Uh, you're 100% right. All we corroborated was that Sandy had the conversation. There's no way for us to corroborate that she actually saw what she said she saw. For me, and my, as an investigator and as, as a person who's trying to interpret these facts the same as you guys are, when I hear her say that, yeah, I, I remembered this, I remembered it happening, but it didn't seem that significant because she thought it was something that occurred when she was being untied. And then when she sees Marissa, she says, are your friends okay? So the corroboration for me that that Marissa, now if Marissa had said, no, I don't remember that conversation, again, that doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen, but that that was, that was you can't even corroborate the fact that the conversation happened. So when Marissa says, yeah, and then she tells me how that conversation happened, and then I talked to Liz as well, obviously, and then Liz says, yeah, I was there when that conversation happened. We know that conversation happened. So the fact that we do know the conversation happened, and we now know how the conversation happened, 
all of those things are indicators that at the very least, this is a memory that Sandy believes to be true. Now, there's a lot more to, you know, could it be a false memory? Could it, there's a lot of different things. But what I, I don't think personally, my opinion, because that conversation with Marissa was very significant to me, I don't believe in any way, shape or form that Sandy was lying when she said she remembered seeing that woman there. To kind of put that into a little more perspective, let's say the conversation with Marissa didn't happen, which I didn't know about that until a couple weeks ago. So the first time Liz told me about this, she said, yeah, my mom's memory did come back. I have the emails where Liz was sending to the lawyers, where the lawyers were sending to the police, trying to tell them she recovered her memory. And I kind of thought the same thing that maybe a lot of you thought, which is, okay, like I, there's nothing I can do with that. And again, it's not that I didn't necessarily believe her, but if, if it's just, you know, a week later or two, whatever, however long it was after the murder, all of a sudden she's like, oh, I had a dream and now I remember seeing this person. That, you know, again, that's not necessarily uncommon when you understand how traumatic memories work. At the same time, though, there's, there's what can you do with that? Not much. But then she says, well, you know, right out, I, I was confused. The reason I didn't say anything about it until later is because I didn't think it was significant because I thought it was a friend that was with Marissa. And then she says, I talked to Marissa about it prior to. And then we have the conversation that you all heard. That is what is corroborated for me was that conversation that she had with Marissa. And because of that conversation, I believe that all the indicators point to the fact that at the very least, Sandy believes that's what actually happened. And there's no way, again, to corroborate necessarily that that is what happened. But given the the sensory details there, the knit of the sweater, the color of the shirt, the way her hair was pulled back, uh, the feelings she had, all of that to me tells me this is a memory that Sandy does have. But at the very least, it's a memory that Sandy truly believes did happen. Jen says, the DA who passed on the case, who was he or she, and is there any chance of having a statement from them or even an interview? Uh, the DA that passed on the case, her name was Tammy Thomas, and she was the ADA that was on call on the night that they tried to file charges on Sandy. I have not reached out, and, and that's I, I don't think any prosecutor would come on uh, that passed on the case and give a statement or say why they didn't. It's just not going to be done. Forget about all of the dynamics of this particular case. They worked for Harris County DA's office. Someone later in the Harris County DA's office tried the case and got a conviction. No one's going to go on the record and say, yeah, well, I didn't try it because it was a bullshit case. It's not going to happen. Um, we do know that Corazal had a conversation with Tammy Thomas that night about 2.15 a.m. And ADA Thomas uh, would not accept charges and, and sent Corazal back to work to go try to build a better case. And we're going to get into a little bit more of that. Actually, the whole episode on Sunday this week is all about Carzal's investigation, and we cover a little bit of this too. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Michael says in episode six, Bob references a Houston Chronicle article where authorities were looking for several males involved with a home invasion in March 2012. A female was arrested and charged with aggravated robbery in the home invasion. Do we know if the male suspects were arrested? Do we know if the female was in jail or prison in December? Has Sandra seen the sketches or photo? 
And is there any concern with potentially biasing Sandra by showing her photo arrays without law enforcement present? So I'm going to kind of work backwards from there. The last question uh, about biasing Sandy about, by showing her a photo array now to try to have her identify anybody. I don't think that's anything anyone would do at this point. I certainly, if I was you know, her attorneys or you know, the investigators that are working for her attorneys, uh, because it's, it's not going to be productive or useful. Number one, you're dealing with a fragmented memory from five years or for, well, at this point, yeah, five years ago now. And there's just no way to get the. And then even if she was able to put a sketch together, the person would have aged five years since then. Uh, there's just I, I don't see there being any um, six years, excuse me, six years now. It just wouldn't be effective for her to do that. Um, even showing her photo array, she has been shown some photos and she was, in fact, I believe, shown a photo of the woman that was arrested in this case. And I believe she was one of the people she said that. And when she was shown several photos, she said that that looks like maybe that could be her, but that's as, as far as she could go with it. So going back to that crime, it was actually February 26th, 20, 2012, when the crime occurred. Uh, the article we were talking about was from March of 2012. So we're talking nine, ten months before Jim's murder. And so this was a home invasion where uh, a group of men broke into these people's house. They, they forced the man into his house about one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then they proceeded to, I believe they, I believe they pistol whipped one of them in the head and then they tied up the man, his wife and his children, uh, and put them in closets. And then they proceeded to, I believe the article I was reading, and we've done a little deeper research into this too, but as far as the article that's out there, um, that they ransacked their house for about two hours while they were tied up, they took items like iPads, laptops, video games. Um, so I actually have the article in front of me. I can read you a little bit from it. Uh, it says, The thieves demanded the man give them money from his safe, but the man told them he did not have a safe. The men left the home after stealing several items, including an iPad, an iPhone, and a gun. And so then what happened is as they're leaving, the the husband was able to untie himself, and he was able to see the two getaway vehicles leaving, which were identified as a black BMW, and a black Chevy Equinox. Two vehicles that, that that fled the scene. The black BMW was pulled over, and there was a woman in her 20s, a Hispanic female in her 20s, that was driving the vehicle. Several of the stolen items were found in her car. And again, let's point out, they didn't steal. I mean, they said that for two hours they were in their home, and they stole, uh, what's it say, an iPad, iPhone, gun, other and some other small items. So think about for not saying that these are the people that that broke into Jim and Sandy's home, but just in general, a general train of thought, like why would someone go through the, the trouble of breaking in and only steal small items? Why would they leave these other large, more expensive items? Well, what we see here is it's it's not uncommon. There's particular things people are looking for that they can easily pawn, easily sell on the street, easily carry. So this is how this goes down. So then that night, the female that was involved in the home invasion attack was caught. The witnesses said that there was, I believe they said there was, there was, they think there was four males, the female, and then it says there was one or two other people involved that they didn't talk about so much in the, in the article. So you got a group of four or five or six people that included this Hispanic female. She's caught. She's alone. She gets arrested. She bonds out in May of 2012. So now we're talking about seven months before Jim's murder. She is out and free when the murder occurred. So at the point that the Melgars were attacked and Jim was killed, 
this woman and everyone connected to this home invasion that occurred that we were talking about here were all out and free at that time. Then in May of 2013, so now we're talking five months after Jim's murder, uh, the woman involved, the woman that was caught is convicted at that point. Uh, but there was a plea deal. And in, in my understanding, I have the documents, but I, we're trying to piece things together from the documents. From what I can tell, she flipped on one of the four or five other people that were connected to the, to the home invasion. And so she, she took a deal in exchange for that testimony and she was sentenced to five years, but then she was immediately or shortly thereafter deported to Colombia. So she was sent out of the country after she made her deal and gave information on one of the other suspects. One of the other suspects then was arrested and convicted shortly thereafter. And he was sentenced to eight years in prison. He is currently still serving his eight year sentence in TDCJ in Texas. So to kind of summarize all that, the home invasion occurred. There was four to five. We know there was at least one Hispanic female and one Hispanic male involved. The female was caught. She was arrested. She bonded out in May. Jim's killed in December. And in May of 2013, she testifies against or gives information, whatever it was, against another person that was involved in that home invasion. She's sent to prison and then deported. And then he is sent to prison for eight years. Long and short of it is this entire crew that broke into a house, tied the family up, put them in closets, ransacked their house and stole some small items. That entire crew was out and free when Jim was killed. Stacy says, please refresh my memory of the vehicles seen in terms of this case. Any that hold a resemblance to the Kingwood case? There really aren't any vehicles in this case. We thought, I, I, it was explained to me by, I'm trying to remember who it even was. It might have been someone from the DA's office or Liz or wh wherever it was. So it was explained to me or one of the attorneys that uh, there was a video camera across the street from the Melgars at the Esmond's home pointed towards the Melgar's house and it didn't cover any of the Melgar's house, but I was told it covered the street and part of their driveway, which really kind of derailed us for a little bit. So I was working off the assumption that no one could have driven down that street and pulled into the Melgar's driveway or been caught on video. Once we now have all the police documents, I supposedly have the video. They sent us files that they're saying are the video, but they're not. We've had people look at it. They're not video files. So we, we can't see them. And um, hopefully we'll still be able to get a hold of them. But from what the reports read, that video camera only showed the upper portion of the Esmond's driveway. It didn't even cover the lower portion, definitely none of the street and none of the Melgar's driveway or home. So we're right back to the fact that we have there could have been two vehicles pulled into their driveway or whatever, driving down the street, parked on the road. None of those were covered by any security cameras. A frustrating part for me, uh, and and this again, we're getting into more of the investigation on Sunday, is I don't show any record to see if any other homes were checked for video cameras. So we know that the one across the street from the Melgars and the one behind them both had security cameras, and they never looked anywhere else. Well, yeah, you might not be able to have video surveillance of the of somebody pulling into the Melgar's driveway, but surely if someone on that block or around the corner, if anybody had any cameras pointed, it's a, it's a dead end street. Okay, so so if we could at least have somewhere to start if we had video surveillance of some car driving up and down there, and I don't see any record that they ever looked for that. So the getting back to that question, in the home invasion we just talked about, the vehicles were the the black BMW and a black Chevy Equinox. 
Uh, but in the Melgar's case, we have no vehicle. So we don't, we don't know what to compare that to. Gerald says, I keep hearing about someone working in the garage all night with the door open and that person not seeing anyone come in or out of the Melgar house. That seems so suspicious. Is there any truth to that? There is truth to it. Um, gosh, I haven't looked at that report in a while, but we did quite a bit of looking into that several months ago uh, on the fan page. Several people were getting into it. I, th- I think Don McElhaney even did some line of sight um, graphics, some engineering stuff, and it was determined that from inside of this man's garage, you couldn't see, you couldn't even see the Melgar's house. You could barely see their driveway. He'd have to be standing like almost out in the street uh, at the end of his driveway to even see the Melgar's house at all because of obstructions that were in the way. So there's not a whole lot to it. The guy says he was out. It was something along the lines of, and, and we'll try to circle back to this. I'll try to pull that, those documents or another follow-up. But uh, yeah, it was something to the extent of, he said, well, I was out in the garage working on my car all night and I never saw anything happening down there. So that was said, but, and it was determined that there's just, there, there's no way if I'm remembering correctly and someone I'm sure will correct me if I'm wrong on that, that, with the line of sight, this guy could not even have seen the Melgar's house from inside of his garage. Lauren says, has Carazal or Doucet ever given public statements or given interviews about the case? I'd love to hear their explanations as to why they'd never followed up with other potential suspects or why they decided to focus on Sandy immediately. Uh, no, not to my knowledge, they haven't. But again, that's that's typical. I mean, it, it was out of the ordinary for Barnett to be doing as many interviews about this case as she has. Um, it's not typical for law enforcement or prosecutors to go make statements like that or to do interviews. So they haven't. I wouldn't expect them to, and especially in a controversial case like this. I mean, I can't imagine they'd want to jump in and, and open themselves up to that kind of scrutiny. I mean, they're getting that kind of scrutiny as it is anyway, without even being in the middle of it. Liz says, I'm wondering if the fact that Sandra reported her recovered memory was ever brought up in trial. If not, why? It was brought up in trial, and we're going to be covering that and talking more about it on Sunday. Deborah says, I'd like to know if the police did a cell tower dump from around the time the crime happened. If not, can one still be done? They didn't, uh, at least if they did, they, they didn't document anywhere. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm hoping and praying that's something that can still be done uh, now that with, with Kathleen Zellner working on the case, that maybe that's something that, that she can make happen. And it's just like the what I was just saying about the video surveillance with the cars. You know, just because someone drove down the street doesn't make them the killer. But if someone other than Sandy committed this crime, they had to get there somehow, right? So if you see a car not driving down the street and heading, you know, heading that direction or, or driving down Kelsey Meadows Court and, and someone else's surveillance camera, well, that's somebody you would at least want to go talk to. You want to you want to figure out who they are, where they're from, why were they there. Uh, same thing with the cell tower. So just because you happen to make a phone call that bounced off that cell tower at midnight around, you know, or around midnight on that night doesn't mean you're the killer, but that gives you some, it, it, every, all these things are just, they're, they're breadcrumbs. They're just a place to start. And they, no, they didn't do that. But so, so it's not like this occurred at five in the afternoon where the cell towers were, you know, peaked and there's all kinds of stuff happening. This is a pretty quiet neighborhood. Uh, it seems to be more age wise. There, there are more people, Jim and Sandy's age. So, you know, around 11 o'clock, midnight, one in the morning, I can't imagine there's a whole hell of a lot of activity on a cell tower. So if you dump it and you find that someone's making a, a phone call at midnight from that tower, well, that might be someone you might want to go track down. Again, that doesn't mean they're the person that killed Jim and Sandy, but you, you never know. Maybe you track that person down and it happens to be, this is just an example, just a, a made up complete hypothetical example. But say they dump the cell tower and they see somebody is making a call 
from that area at that time. Or even you can see someone someone sent and received, both the sender and receiver were in the same area, making receiving that call right in the same neighborhood. And then you check that number and you see who it comes back to and you find out that that cell phone comes back to the woman who was arrested and out on bond for the Kingwood home invasion that we were just talking about. That's significant. And then maybe you check some surveillance cameras and you find out, well, there's her driving that black BMW down the street right then. You know, that, that, that still doesn't mean she did, but that there's a suspect. That's someone to interrogate. That's someone to interview and talk to, figure out who she is, why she was there, whatever it is. These are things that the police didn't do that I wish they had because it could have just given us something else to look at. The biggest problem I have with this, all the dramatics aside, the biggest problem I have with this is the pro- what happened in this case is it's just a complete set of blinders. And you'll see that Sunday. They were only looking for information that proved Sandy Melgar did this. They weren't looking for information or evidence to just see who could have done this. And, and, and because of that, we have big misses like this one. Morgan says, was hypnosis ever attempted in relation to Sandra's memory? I don't think so. No. And, and there's some people have chimed in about that that are experts in hypnosis uh, on the fan page. And I don't know how effective it would be. Uh, but no, as far as I know, she never tried hypnosis. Mary says, the maid has been brought up many times, and I believe she is a daughter who came with her sometimes. I was wondering if Sandy would recognize her if she saw her. Could she be the woman from the bathroom? I mean, yeah, Sandy definitely knows what both of them look like, and she's never given any indication that it could have been one of them. It was someone she didn't recognize. Karen says, when did Sandy tell law enforcement that she was hit on the head? Liz mentioned it in her interview with Bob. Did the memory of her being hit in the head come back at the same time she remembered the girl? To be clear, Sandy doesn't have a memory of being hit on the head. She's never said she was hit on the head. She said, and it was during her police interrogation, uh, she said that she thinks she was hit on the head because her head hurt, and when she felt her head, there was a lump on her head. She could feel that, so that's so. So she was just assuming that that's what happened, you know, or she, you know, she was deducing, I should say, that's what happened. She wakes up, she doesn't have any memory. She got a sore head, and she feels her head, and there's a bump on her head. She figured that she probably was hit on the head. Lauren says, I'm not positive which episode I heard this in, but did the family hire a private investigator? And if so, will you be able to see what the PI found out? The family did. In fact, that's the primary reason why the family retained, why Sandy retained an attorney in January, you know, a few weeks after the murder, because they were just, and somebody had made a post or a comment on the fan page that led to a long discussion about, well, why didn't the family do this? Or why didn't they do that? Or why didn't they get a sketch artist or this and that? and you got to understand, there's a lot of stuff that was happening that we haven't just talked about, we haven't put out there. First of all, it's not the victim's responsibility to investigate the murder. It's the police's responsibility. And just today, because I was looking for a particular document, so I was going through some old email records, and I, I, forget, I went through and was reading just the dozens and dozens and dozens of emails that Liz was sending to, I mean, it's a lot of them directly to, before the attorney, directly to Carazal. Just, just leads that were just absolutely ignored. Her cousin, uh, was, was calling the, the police, calling Corazal directly on his direct line and through the station, leaving voicemails and messages for him because she had seen some suspicious people at the crime scene that night. And later there was another home invasion. I think it was a, a week later or so. And on the news and they put the sketch out, the composites of that. And from what I'm reading in the report, the cousin, Jennifer, recognized that guy. She said the person in that, that composite, from the, what it says in these police reports, 
She was trying to get a hold of Kurzel to tell him, I think that's the guy that was in the car uh, on the the night when when her body was found. That were kind of camped out looking at the at the crime scene in a, in a vehicle from across the road. He never called her back. Liz is emailing repeatedly, saying, "Please call my cousin back." She's calling you over and over. She has information for you. She's sending him information about more items that are missing, like the their watches. She talked to Liz and Sandy were investigating this case the whole time. Uh, they're, they're reaching out. She knew that her dad had some nice watches that he had got from a friend of his, and so she she tra- tracked down the friend. And he gave her detailed descriptions of all these expensive watches that that he had given Jim. And she's sending him that. And then Liz is asking, will you please give me the inventory of what items you have? Because I'm trying to tell you what's missing, but I don't know what you have. And it just over and over and over and over and over again. And when nothing was being done, that's when they retained the attorney. So the attorney could try to get their attention. All the work he was doing, they remember, they never asked to question Sandy again. They didn't know Sandy was a suspect. Until he, uh, there was that one email I read a while back where, uh, the attorney Nick Oessi says, uh, due to their posture on the case, don't talk to them anymore, only talk to me. That's when he figured out, wait, they still think Sandy is a suspect here. But everything he's sending them is information. Here's a suspect you should look like. Here's some new information. Here's a lead. You know, there's, they had put out, uh, a reward fund and had a tip line and somebody contacted Liz directly. And said they had information and they recognized somebody from a composite sketch or something. And she's sending that to Curazal and telling him, will you please look? And they're just ignoring all of it. And so, yes, the, the attorney then hired, you know, so which means Sandy hired, they paid for it, a private investigator to try to solve, not to defend Sandy, but they were trying to solve Jim's murder because the police didn't appear to be doing that. So, yes, they hired a private investigator. And now there's another private investigator now. That works with attorneys now that's still trying to find, because now that she's convicted, in order to get her out, if we can't find a constitutional violation or if the court doesn't agree that there is a constitutional violation, the only way to get Sandy out is to prove who actually did it. And it's a a damn shame that we're in that position, but that's the position we're in. So they've been working that no one should be questioning how hard the family worked to try to solve the murder. Because they worked tirelessly day in and day out for months and months and months, and it wasn't their job to do that. Lene says, did I hear correctly in the episode that the tip about Randy came in at 4.41 p.m. on December 28th, but that the detective went to his house at 2 p.m.? Was that the same day or was that a different day? That was confusing in the supplement, unless I just missed it. I don't have the supplement right in front of me, but I remember uh, when I was writing that, um, you know, going through the supplemental reports. That it did seem confusing because the, the way it tracked chronologically, it didn't seem to make sense. But essentially, however, even if, if that was the case, obviously that would have been a typo because the, the chronology there is that Carzal's sergeant contacted him and told him that they had, uh, this tip come in from Channel 13. And then Carzal and Duce went to go visit Randy. Julie says, there's been some talk about a missing tweet from Kathleen Zellner's page. It's probably nothing, but can you reaffirm that she is still on this case? Missing. I don't know anything about a missing tweet, but yes, I can absolutely confirm that Kathleen Zellner is still on the case. Absolutely, yes. Wendell says, ha, the one thing Jim's friend mentions about Sandy's condition is that she uses a cane. You can't make this shit up. So what's the deal with the cane, Bob? <laughs> well, it's a good question, actually, that you have, Mike. What's the deal with the cane? But yeah, I mean, it's obvious for some reason, right away, You guys, so you guys remember you heard uh, the interview with Gerson and Marissa and Monica and the neighbors 
And we heard from the supplemental reports, some conversations at the, the during the canvassing. Every single person was asked, does Sandy have a cane? Do you ever see her walk with a cane? That was like this huge deal for the police. And I know it's a huge deal for the Sandy is guilty camp that I don't think she needed a cane and it was all a farce and blah, 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 blah. Even though there's pictures of her walking with a cane from years ago. And it's always that it's for people that have lupus or hip replacements or anything of like that, you know, that you have good days and bad days. Some days you could get around without it. Some days she she needed it. But there's still these whole all these for some reason, it was a huge deal for the police. All I can figure is that because of that tunnel vision, that they believed that it was uh, Sandy that committed the murder. And they were certain of that and didn't look anywhere else. And then they see her hobbling outside with a cane. That all I can figure is their thought was, ah, she must be faking. This is a ruse. And that's why they were asking about the cane. But then, you know, we hear, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear when they talk to Carlos Espinoza, uh, Jim's coworker, and they ask him, you know, what was Jim and Sandy's relationship like? What did he talk about? And they have good memories and their vacations and their cruises. And, and Jim was always worried about her health and that she had to walk with a cane. That Jim talked to him about how she had to walk with a cane. So, yeah, the, the, the one thing that was said that was really significant about Sandy was that Jim always talked about how she had to walk with a cane. So I don't know why. I guess I kind of know why it was really important to the police because they, they, in order for them to make this case against her being guilty, part of it has to be that this whole disabled woman that has a hard time getting around was a ruse, but clearly it wasn't a ruse unless Jim was in on it. Joe says, I work with leads online often at a music store. It is typically searched by serial number rather than person. I've actually been called by law enforcement when a guitarist serial number was the same as a stolen gun. Were any serial numbers given by Liz ran through that database? Um, I don't know if any of the serial numbers were run through the database. Uh, the the well, the information we had on leads online was because apparently on law enforcement side they can use that system to search a name because it's uh, for pawn shops. Uh, anytime somebody makes a sale, uh, at least this is my understanding, at a pawn shop. That information, you have to give your driver's license, oftentimes a thumbprint, and that information goes into this database. And so that came up when the, with Randy, when he was discovered to be, uh, you know, when they, they said that this guy was acting suspicious, he lived down the road, and then they pull his criminal record, and they find he's got a long criminal record, including a lot of thefts and little tools and electronics, just like was taken in the, the Melgar case. Uh, and then he ran the leads online and found in there, and it may have been the same place where he was searching those two things, but anyway, they find that he's got a long list of pawn sales and he's constantly selling things like tools, electronics, Xbox games, Xbox consoles, uh, DVD players, small TVs. I mean, that, that's all kind of his MO for the things that he steals and then pawns. So that's what was found on Randy. As far as the serial numbers, I, I don't know. I mean, it, honestly, from the what I'm seeing in the emails that were occurring back then, it doesn't appear that Curzol was really doing anything, period. This next one's from Destiny. Sandy mentioned that the Hispanic woman in her memory looked, quote, annoyed as she was watching Sandy. Was this person watching her being tied up by another individual? Not sure if Sandy provided additional details. Yeah, that's exactly right. She she remembered, Sandy remembers laying on the floor prone, so on her, on her stomach, and she remembers feeling some pressure in her back and someone manipulating her arms, and she looked up, kind of craning her neck, looking up into the bathroom and saw this woman standing in the bathroom staring back at her and whoever was behind her. And our last question comes from Chris. What's the point of criticizing the investigation to make your point? And I think he's mocking you here when he says, they didn't find this out, but I sure will. 
I hope you'll address this on Friday, as I felt I was being hit over the head with criticisms, but to what end? Yeah, so, well, that's fair. I, I have been quite critical. And I, I guess to explain that the, the reason we're going through this is in order to investigate any wrongful conviction. And we have a process that we've, we're, we're always fine-tuning, and we're learning how to do it better and better every time. But as I've said all the way back from season one or two, if a wrongful conviction occurred, you should be able to identify how and why it occurred. And so the only way to do that is to investigate the original investigation, to look and see what was done, were there mistakes made, and is that how this happened? So that's thing one. We have to do that. That's part of the process to determine if we're dealing with a wrongful conviction to begin with. Uh, and then the other thing is we're trying to see were there leads that could have been followed because our other job is to try to figure out what did actually happen, to find justice for Jim and justice for Sandy and, and, to, and to get her out of prison if she was wrongfully convicted and put in there, which I 100% believe now that she was. So that's why we, we have to go through and see what they did and what they didn't do, where the mistakes were made. As far as the criticisms go, I, I guess all I can say is this. What you get on the podcast is me. And you're getting my real opinions and emotions. And that's and, and some people like me and some people hate me, but that's me. So what you're seeing there with the criticisms is I'm just a regular dude reading through these documents, writing out you know my scripts. I'm, I'm typing all this stuff out over the course of two or three days before we record the episode. And so I, I'm writing it as I speak. So, you know, the episode you hear is me speaking in my own words. So I, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I don't write like a script like it's a, a textbook. I just write my thoughts down as I'm researching the episode that we're going to be covering. And so what happens is I'm a real guy that has real emotions and I get pissed about things. I get upset about things. And I've just the, the way that I've always done this, I've always tried to be very real with you guys. And I try to write what I'm feeling into the script for the podcast that you're going to hear every week. And so you're hearing what's what's real and raw for me when I'm reading and writing that out. And so if I'm pissed, you're probably going to hear that I'm pissed. If I'm if I'm excited, you're going to hear that I'm excited. I mean, that's just that's just the way that this podcast works. You're getting from me. And and to be honest with you, I I can look back at the last, you know, few episodes and say, "Okay, maybe maybe you're you're spending too much time focusing on the people here." And they need to go back to the process. And, and, and that's a, a evaluation that I've kind of done personally as we're moving forward, because I can see when and, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because I'm, I'm just genuinely because there's more stuff that I haven't even shared on the podcast that's going on. And I just genuinely am fuming pissed about what's happening. And of course, you're seeing that and you're hearing that when it comes out on the podcast. But me going kind of back through and listening to them. I felt like, okay, I don't want us to lose focus. And I, and I kind of, I kind of learned that a good litmus test for me is the social media response. And so when we put an episode out and there's some important information covered and then in the response on social media, no one's talking about the important information. They're all talking about the anger or, or dismay for the individuals involved. Then that, that to me, that means I didn't do my job that week, that, that I failed in doing my job that week. I put too much of my own emotion into it and people miss the point so i appreciate the the critique or criticism i will tell you as always you're always going to get me but that is something that that i feel like we can do better is for, or i can do better is to try to keep us more focused on the elements of the case and less on the people as we move forward because 
it's a distraction and I can just scream and cuss and yell about it to Mike and then be more of a calm guy on the radio. That's right, Bob. And if it's too bad, I can edit it out. <laughs> right. Good, good. Right. Because you're podcast edit guy. Did you guys know that Mike has his own business? If you have a podcast, you need it edited. He's taking the show on the road and he does this shit at home. After he sits here and edits all day long, he edits from his house too. Podcast edit guy. That's right, Bob. Thanks for the plug. Podcasteditguy.com for all your podcasting needs. Right. That'll be $6 for the ad. <laughs> and with that, we're going to wrap things up. And, uh, oh, and, and actually, let me, let me throw a little bit more in there for you. So this Sunday's episode is all about Sean Corazal, the detectives, the lead investigators, uh, testimony, which is a great insight into every nook and cranny, every little detail of the investigation. So we can see what was done right and what was done wrong. Next week, I am out of town for the entire week. So Mike and I have had to do some weird scheduling stuff and cramming to prepare for that. So next week's Friday follow up will not be a follow up to this Sunday's episode. We actually had listener y'all know from uh, Facebook as Kelly DZ, uh, who is a limited licensed psychologist and has an extensive background dealing with PTSD and memories. And so she actually came. She's I didn't realize this. She lives in southwest Michigan, not far from us. So she and her husband made the trek in the snow in the blizzard the other day down to the studio. And we recorded a conversation um, with Kelly. And that's going to be next week's follow up, because, like I said, we just we have to get it done this week because I'm out of town next week. But. This Sunday, it's all about Carzal's testimony. Thank you guys. We appreciate you tuning in every week, and we'll see you next week. See ya. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. 
And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>